This morning, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're continuing on in the book of Mark, and we're weaving our way through here. And we're going to begin with verse 21, and it's kind of a lengthy text this morning, but we'll read that here to begin with uh, as well. So verse 21 in Mark chapter 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body, and she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving himself that power had gone out from her, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman who, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let me pray again, I think, just for this. Father, These are words from you that we are called to know and apply to our lives. So Lord, as we look at this passage for a few minutes this morning, would you just change us, uh, help us to understand you more today, and that it might impact even though our lives, even as we leave this place. So thank you for this text. Amen. Last week, We looked at the story of a man who was controlled by multiple demons. And we saw that Jesus had the power to heal that man. If you remember the story, he he comes up and he speaks to the man and the demons come out of the man and they enter the pigs and the pigs rush down and they drown themselves in the Sea of Galilee. Now if we were to back up three weeks ago, we looked at the disciples as they were crossing the lake. And a violent storm comes up, and the waves were going over the sides of the boat and sinking the boat, and Jesus stands up, 
And he uttered the words, be still, quiet wind. And he calms the sea. And it tells us in that text that the disciples were amazed at his power. Jesus had power. Earlier in Mark, another example. A leper comes up to Jesus. And where potentially the skin would have been rotting away, there would have been deformity, there would have been the effects of this disease on him, and Jesus touches the man, and he's healed. He's full, he's restored. And you look at it and go, what power is this? The ability demonstrated over and over again to heal people, to even... Over creation, he can calm the winds and the storms. But here's where I need to throw out a question for you. When you think of Jesus, and, and what your, 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 kind of your thoughts or how you're intrigued by him, are you more drawn to the power of Jesus and all his demonstrations of that, that he is God, or are you more drawn to the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. See, I think the challenge sometimes for us, and even for me at times, you got the power that he does all these things, performs these miracles, and it proves that he's God. And then you have the passion, compassion and the mercy and the caring of who he is. And he goes, sometimes we default to one side or the other. But I think this is true. He always links his power and his compassion and mercy together. You'll see so often how they're demonstrated together over and over again. This morning, I want to give you the key point right up front. Something that we need to be reminded of this morning as we walk through this passage. And for your notes, if you're following along there, I said this. Jesus is our compassionate friend and a caring shepherd. See, the compassion of Jesus is demonstrated story after story. And he does things that other people aren't unwill or are unwilling to do. Touch a leper. You couldn't do that. The demon-possessed man last week, others wanted to avoid this guy, and Jesus goes up and he, he, he engages him and he eventually heals him. But it's because he had mercy and compassion. And I think the challenge for us when you come to this idea of who Jesus is, sometimes I think we get confused and, and we feel like there's this, when, are you powerful, Jesus, or are you compassionate and merciful? But I want to put up a, a biblical definition of compassion that describes Jesus here. And, and this is how the it's a Bible dictionary. It's that disposition that fuels acts of kindness and mercy. Compassion, a form of love, is aroused within us when we are confronted with those who suffer or are vulnerable, compassion often produces action to alleviate the suffering. See, this is a snapshot of who Jesus is. But I think one of the challenges in our culture today, I think that we sometimes widen even the definition of compassion. 
And we stretch its meaning. And what we've done is we take compassion and mercy and caring and we, we join it with the word tolerance. And so when things happen, what happens in the name of compassion and mercy, we don't call sin, sin. In the name of compassion and mercy, we don't call evil, evil. But folks, that wasn't Jesus. When you look at Jesus, at times he was offensive. And he was divisive at times. And yet, at the same time, he was compassionate and he was caring. I don't don't know if you realize that the word compassion refers to the deepest parts of your innards, your guts, your bowels. That's where it says they believe that the compassion was stirred and mercy was stirred from. But folks, we want to see the purity of Christ's compassion here because there's one other piece I just want to kind of set the stage with. Do we understand that Christ's mercy and his compassion was never generated by guilt? Never generated by feeling good about himself. I'm going to serve the blind man here because I feel guilty that he's this way. No. He he never demonstrated compassion because he wanted to get a, a, a pat on the back from his father. Folks, there is a purity of compassion and mercy that I don't think we catch at times in terms of understanding who Christ is. So today, what we want to look is that purity of passion, compassion and mercy and care. We want to see two people who are the recipients of this. So we want to dig into this text a little bit and just go, who are these people that that Christ demonstrated this unbelievable compassion and mercy on? Let me put up the first text, from verse 22. Let's begin there this morning. Look how it goes. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, first, you gotta, we got to catch the, the breath of this. In just that statement, he's the ruler of the synagogue. Again, that's a wider statement, I think, than we understand, because understand back then, the leaders of the synagogues, were the people and the Pharisees, along with the Pharisees, would have been those people that were looking to get rid of Jesus. See, here was a man who was unwilling to give in to the pressure of his peers. And undoubtedly, he would have been, he would have known people in his, his buddies, the leaders, who were trying to get Jesus, kill Jesus. See, this man had some qualities that I think we need to see here this morning. The first observation there on Jairus, this man had courage. This man had courage. See, the Pharisees and the religious elite, they couldn't deter Jairus from going to Jesus. I'm pretty convinced that when they discovered he's hanging around Jesus, they wouldn't have been real happy. See, I think he would have known people 
in his circle who were looking to have Jesus killed. This man was courageous just by going to Jesus and asking. But there's another characteristic of this man as well. He was a humble man. Here he's in a position of of leadership in the religious world, and yet he drops to the ground in front of Jesus, and he gives Jesus respect. He bows in front of the one where his friends would have said, how dare you? How dare you fall in front of Jesus? This man had great humility. But another observation about this man, this man loved his daughter. He loved his family well. I don't know if you realize in the Luke version of this story, um, this is his only child who is on her deathbed. This man had true compassion for his daughter. And he realized he didn't send his wife. He came himself. He took responsibility for the welfare of his little girl. This man loved his daughter well. But another quality that I see in this of this man, this man was desperate as well. Any help that I could get for the child that I love, I need help. And I think it's a picture of really a great father who loved well. He would do anything. No peer pressure was going to keep him away. He knew the gravity of his daughter's health. She was close to death. There's one more characteristic of this man as well. He is confident that Jesus could heal. Folks, he had a faith in Jesus. Somewhere along the line, he had heard enough of Jesus' teaching or wherever, but he, he, he goes, this man is true, what he's saying is true, and he can heal. So they encounter each other. This man comes up to Jesus and obviously tells him the story, and Jesus tells him, I can help. See, Jesus was moved to action. And Jesus begins to take Jairus, and they're walking toward back to his house where his, his little girl is dying. But then something odd takes place. See, Jairus knows that it's, this is really important to get back to the house. And Jesus is walking, and he stops. And he turns around because he felt power leaving his body. Now, we have to realize this this woman was only a couple of feet from him, and she would have understood the question that Jesus was asking of the disciples. She knew. She knew it, it was meant for her. Look at verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. What a statement, the whole truth. See, the storyline of the father's daughter close to death has been interrupted by a woman. But but here's where we go to pause and, and ponder this woman a bit and figure out what the deal is about her. What's the picture here for her? And that first observation, you'll see it, we see it in the text. There's 12 years of torment. 12 years. This was no minor inconvenience. And we realize what it is. 
she's had a menstrual cycle going, ongoing for 12 years. Almost guaranteed to be anemic. But this was a private issue for her. There was no calling up the prayer chain at the synagogue and go, would you put my request on on the line, please? She wouldn't have been asking people to pray for her and telling that, you know what, I've been flowing for 12 years. Folks, the embarrassment of this issue for this woman was deep. This was so private. And she had to tell Jesus, a man, a man. Let me give you another observation. More than likely, this woman was unmarried. Now, it doesn't tell us her age, but it's pretty obvious that she wouldn't have been able to have children during this time. And you have to understand, in that culture, it would have been more than likely that if she had a husband, that that condition would have given him the right to put her out and say, you are no longer married to me. He would have divorced her at that point, sent her away. And I think if we ponder human nature and what people think and the cruelty at times, I wonder if people would have been wondering when they see her and go, what's wrong with her? What sin has she committed? But there's one last, there's a technical issue as well. And it goes along with the Jewish faith. And it says this, she would have been deemed spiritually unclean or ritually unclean. See, no matter what the cause of the loss of blood, that there was restrictions on her. It's Leviticus chapter 15 is where they're found. But she would have been rendered unclean and anyone else who would touch her This woman would not have been able to go to the synagogue. This person had to avoid evil. See, the the, the laws, the the purity laws really were a hindrance to her. She wasn't supposed to go out. She couldn't touch any other family members or friends. I suspect she never had a hug for 12 years. She couldn't enjoy a normal life, constantly debilitated, And it's not surprising, the text says, she ended up losing all her money. All her money went to doctors. She had visited the Mayos down there, the University of Minnesota. Nothing, there was no help. I don't know if you realize the doctors in the first century Palestine, usually what they did is they used a, a wide range of herbal cures for it. And it's obvious here that they did not work. And and surgery, if they did perform surgery, was always used as a last resort. And the reason for that is the patients would almost always die because they didn't have, from shock, they didn't have any anesthetic. You see the reality of that. But let me give you another point there. She was desperate. Just like Jairus, she was desperate as well. She was willing to break the law. She was willing to be a part of that crowd. She wasn't supposed to be there. She was prepared to do anything because she heard that this wonder worker called named Jesus was might, might heal her. This woman hoped that Jesus could do what the doctors could not do. Another quality of this woman This woman did not give up. 
but forged ahead because she had faith just like Jairus. See, there was no giving up attitude. She didn't play the victim card. She pushes her way through the crowd, not informing those that she was unclean. I wonder if she had a scarf over her head to try to disguise herself because she wasn't supposed to be there. But she weaves her way through and she comes up behind Jesus and she reaches out and she touches the fringe of his garment. And in that moment, the moment she touched his clothes, she was healed by the power of God. And her defilement was gone. And she knew it. Now, technically here, you have to catch this. The moment she touched Jesus' garment, he was also supposed to be unclean. And he was supposed to avoid any contact with anybody else for seven days. But she never lost her faith. In spite of what she endured, she still believed. I suspect she was depressed and discouraged over it, but she never quit. See, there was a humility with her just like Jairus. And she didn't want to embarrass him. Look at verse 33, how it, how, it, how it goes here. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she comes up to Jesus in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. What a sense of humility again of coming to Jesus and the faith knowing that this is the one that could heal me. But here's where I've got to stop and point something out. A reminder for your notes that faith in faith really isn't a biblical truth, a reality. Faith must always have an object. And I think it's confusing at times within the churches when you hear TV preachers and such, because often today, people, teachers on TV, they go, just believe, believe and believe in faith, have faith. And it's what they're saying is have faith in faith. But folks, that is unbiblical. You must have an object in order to have real faith. And her object was in front of her and it was Jesus. And she said, I know he can can heal me. And we as well, when you think of having faith, even in the circumstances in our lives, we must have an object to the faith. It's not just, oh, I think I can, I think I can, I, I know I'm going to get healed, I know I'm going to get healed. I go, that doesn't, that's not faith. The object is, I know Jesus is able to hear me. And, and there's a place where in our faith, I, I think we have to realize this, that the object of our faith, who is Jesus, has the authority to heal and the power to heal and the compassion to heal, but he also can say, no, i got a better plan for you. And what we do is we have to come to him and go, okay, Jesus, thy will be done. See, there's an element of faith of just going, thy will be done. But look at verse 34. His response to her, he said to her, daughter, a term of endearment, your faith in me has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Do you feel the compassion? He looks at this woman and he goes, daughter, you're healed. 
you catch the mercy and compassion and the care of Jesus at that moment. The woman in front of her, in front of him for 12 years, and she's healed because she has faith in Jesus. But there's the rest of the story in our text as well. We need to get back to Jairus. So while this woman is bowing in front of Jesus, talking, and he's talking to this woman, a man runs up and tells Jairus, you know what, your daughter has just died. Just think of the devastation at that point in his heart. Now, there's part of me that wonders, was Jairus a little upset with this woman because Jesus had stopped and encountered her? He interrupted Jesus going to heal my daughter. Look at verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe. See, Jesus is a shepherd here who comforts. Do not fear. Jairus, I care about this. Now, I do have to remind you of something that the obvious here. Fear is so rooted in doubting that God is good and in control. Do we remember that? But Jairus, he says, Jairus, look at me. Believe in me. Trust me. I can help. So he sends the crowd away, and along with Peter, James, and John, they head to the, his home and they get to the home, and it's obvious that these people knew that the, the daughter was dead. I don't know if you know this, but they would actually hire professional mourners to come once a death has occurred. And typically, everybody's supposed to have two, but if he was a synagogue ruler, he probably would have had a whole bunch of people outside the house mourning and wailing for him to signify that this great Catastrophe had taken place. The daughter had died. So Jesus sees that crowd. And he wades his way through the crowd, but then he comes 39. Look at how it keeps going. And when he entered, he goes into the house. He said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. See, people, why are you making such a big deal over this? Don't worry, be happy. No, that's probably not what he said, but look at the response. They laughed at him. They're going, oh, don't you get it, Jesus? She's dead. We have seen her with our eyes. And then look what he does. He tells them to leave, and he goes, obviously, maybe to another room and with Jairus and Mrs. Jairus and, and Peter and James and John, and he tells them, I'm going to demonstrate my power. Why? Because I'm merciful. I have compassion. I care. Trust me. Look how it goes. But he put them out all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Can you visualize that scene? A mother and a daughter, seeing their daughter who is dead, 
Mom was there probably when she died. And all of a sudden, this child gets up and there's tears. There's tears of joy. They're just hugging this girl to death. And here was a man who a short time earlier was desperate. And people would have, his cohorts would have said, don't go to Jesus. You know, do we ever think just how much that family changed at that moment? Having a little daughter who was dead all of a sudden come to life. Here's a mother and a father hearing the words spoken by Jesus. Child, get up. Walk. Now, i, I got to remind you, this was the second um, resurrection or, uh, where he healed somebody from the dead. The, fir- the, the first one, actually, was, if you remember, was on the widow's. A widow's son was being brought out of the city, and Jesus saw the widow as her only son, and Jesus says it has compassion on her, and he, wrote, and he had this son all of a sudden come to life. But but here's, again, where we got to go with the application. Let me put the key point back up here, but with a little twist, a question. Can I ask you today, is Jesus your compassionate friend and a caring shepherd? Do you believe that personally for you? That he's merciful today, even though he is in heaven? Do you believe that? When you think about the circumstances maybe in your life, maybe some of you are going through real hard times. Do you believe he still has compassion and he's merciful and he cares for you? Do you believe that he has the power to change the circumstances if he wants? Do you believe that he has the best plan in his hands for you? See, are we putting our faith in him and what he desires. But there's one more verse left i got to point out here. And it implies something even about Jesus and his caring. Because he cares about the big things and the little things. Look at verse 43. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Folks, Jesus cares about the little things. So mom and dad, you catch the picture, they're jumping, they're hugging their daughter, they're crying for joy, and Jesus pipes up and goes, Mom and dad, aren't you forgetting something? Your girl hasn't eaten in days. You need to get up and cook her a hamburger and get some fries and get a shake, okay? (laughs) See, Jesus cares about the little things, even the food for this girl. But when you pause and you see the totality of these two stories, shouldn't this not grow our faith and recognize the purity of Christ's mercy, his compassion, his care for us? And you realize he did this not out of duty. He did this not because he felt guilty in some way that I need to serve these people. He didn't do it because he was going to get a pat on the back by his father. He did this out of the purity of his love. Complete love for us. 
See, do we know that certainty? Do we know how much that Jesus loves us and he cares for us? He is our personal friend that's filled with compassion. And he's a shepherd who watches over our lives. See, I think it pushes us to really need, we need to bow before him, humble ourselves and go, okay, God, you're in control. But one last piece here. Maybe there's someone here that you're really a part of the crowd. You've never really gone up to Jesus and said, Jesus, by faith, I want to trust you. I want you to be the object of my faith. And if you're one here today that's never put your faith in Jesus, that you've bowed, you humbled yourselves like Jairus before him and said, Jesus, you can take away my sin. I would implore you to respond. Because, folks, there was a crowd in this story who really didn't get it. They wanted some miracles and to see the show. But they didn't put their faith in the object that was standing in front of them, and that's Jesus. And if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, you've never had that kind of faith, would you call me, talk to one of the elders, talk to somebody here at the church and just say, you know, I'm not sure. And I would invite you to respond. Let's stand and pray.